Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A three-time Grand Slam champion. Ladies and gentlemen, for the last time, would you welcome to Rod Laver Arena from South Australia, Australia, Leighton Hewitt. <laughs> Well, one man who has followed Leighton Hewitt's career every single step of the way is the man who announces and introduces him onto the court every single year at the Rod Laver Arena, Mr. Craig Willis. Craig, it's lovely to have you with us here on the Tennis Podcast. And what was that like for you tonight to introduce him for the final time? It was a strange feeling, David, to be quite honest, having sort of got used to doing it at tournaments and Davis Cups over the years where, especially in Melbourne, where you knew that he was probably going to get to maybe the quarters or even the semis of a Grand Slam. But here he is in a a second-round match against a terrific opponent. And sort of the realisation comes that this is possibly the last time. And then as I was rolling out the, the last few lines where I say, you know, the man we call Rusty from... Adelaide, South Australia, Australia. I thought I'll just put a little extra Leighton uh, Hewitt into it. But look, it has been a remarkable career. And he will always be remembered not only for his skill at the game of tennis, but his tenacity. Um, You know, there's a guy that you would have in the trenches uh, with you at any given stage. And we only have to see it not only in events like Grand Slams and tournaments on the ATP World Tour, but... A Davis Cup, you know, where he just digs so deep. And I'm just so delighted that he will continue that involvement with tennis as our new Davis Cup captain against the USA here in Melbourne in March. He actually mentioned you in his uh, post-match yesterday and said, you know, I, I get goosebumps when the big man Craig Willis announces my name and says Australia's late here. That must, be, that must be nice for you. Well, it's terrific. It's only taken him 20 years to recognise my enormous talent. Now, look, he, he, he's that sort of guy that um, if you're... And look, I'm not on the what you'd call the inner circle, but we are good mates, um, and I've done a few favours with him over the years where he's asked me to help out to do something with a charity, whatever. I compared his wedding uh, to, to the delightful Beck. Um, but he, he never forgets. He never forgets the people that were there back when you know, I introduced him when he first walked out onto centre court, you know, 20 Australian Opens ago at Davis Cup, where we've had some pretty tight situations, uh, not so much on the court but off the court, where we've been able to sit down and talk about how we're going to approach this problem that we may have had or um, how you're feeling, you know, that sort of stuff. So, you know, he's got a very loyal band of friends as well as that inner circle around him. And, you know, not many people can say that they've got that, that sort of support network. Plus, 
you know, the people that genuinely like him, you know, and you see him away from tennis, he's, he's a different cat. He's a very funny man. He, he loves a beer. He loves going to the football to watch his beloved Adelaide Crows in our crazy game, the Australian Football uh, League. So, you know, there's a couple of sides to Leighton that, you know, you don't really see. But the best thing he said to me tonight was, he said, ah, oh, look, I'm here. I'm a bit sad. But he said, oh, tomorrow I can eat what I want to. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? We forget all that. You mentioned uh, occasionally there have been one or two spots where you've you've all had to sit down and work out the best way to to move forward. And I suppose, I mean, to be honest, it's all been fantastic tonight and all the last few weeks. But Leighton's been on a bit of a journey. Let's be honest. Over the last fifteen years, it hasn't always been roses, has it? No, no, it hasn't. But I think that's the resilience and. I think a lot of it, David, is taking the advice of the people around him. And he talks a lot about Tony Roach, as you know. And, and Roach has been very much a life mentor in terms of, you know, OK, Sunshine, you've probably made a mistake here. This is how we're going to fix it. And this is what you're going to do about it. And it's funny, he's very close with his mum and dad. But it's the sort of advice that someone who really loves you and appreciates you but is not your family can give you and that's one of the things that he always mentions Rochi and we all love Rochi but they've got that bond and there's that special feeling between the two of them that if Rochi sat him down and said pull your head in sunshine you know you go out there and hit tennis balls you know Leighton would listen probably if anyone else did it you tell them to mm. but no if it's Rochi he'll listen to him and that's that's a pretty special thing well, Craig Willis was telling us about the loyal band of friends and and uh, people that he's worked with over the many years that Leighton Hewitt has been a tennis professional. The first man to coach Leighton Hewitt was Darren Cahill, and I got an opportunity to speak to him straight after Leighton Hewitt had finished his singles career. Well, Darren, we've just come out of the commentary box having seen Leighton Hewitt as a singles player for the final time. You were there right at the beginning. His early coach helped him to world number one and all those Grand Slam uh, successes. What was that like for you to witness that tonight? Yeah, I think it's an emotional match. Well, firstly, more for him because he's the one that's been on this journey from day one as a little kid who bought ground passes here with his family coming to watch all the matches as a young kid and one day hopefully dreaming of, of playing on Rod Laver Arena. Uh, he can tell you point for point what happened between Pat Cash and Mats Volander in 1988. It's amazing how much he loves the game and then to finally have that career that he had, two-time year-end number one, wins a couple of majors. But I think when you think of Leighton, it's more about defining himself as Australia's greatest ever and most successful Davis Cup player ever. And in a country like Australia that has so many great legends, to be able to say that, it's a real feather in his cap. So I think it's an emotional ride for everybody. He's given us so many great memories, which I'm thankful for. But I think more importantly than that, just thankful to be his mate. When you first encountered him and started working with him, what, what was he like? Well, I got a knock on the door when he was 12 years of age and he had the Agassiz gear on, he had the hat on backwards, he had seven or eight Prince rackets in the back and he was a pro at 12 years of age and he was something special and he had an X factor that you can't really put a finger on but you can see in his eyes that he was desperate to make this a career for himself. He wanted to be on the big stage. He had no interest in playing on court 16 against a guy ranked 100. He wanted to play Agassiz, Sampras on centre court in front of 15,000 people and that's as a young kid. So when you have that desire 
and that willpower and, and you work towards that every single day when you're a kid, uh, success is going to come. I don't think anybody dreamed that he was going to have the success that he did have, and that's full credit to him. How on earth did he do it on things like Wimbledon, Centre Court, and in that US Open final, one remembers him beating Pete Sampras. I mean, it's an extraordinary achievement, particularly for a guy of his stature physically. Well, he had one of the best returns of serves back in those those days, and he was lightning fast, and he had a, an ability to grab the speed of another player and redirect it and put the ball on a dime. And uh, his tennis mind, I think, separated him from a lot of players back then because you could go through a lot of matches that he played and very rarely would he hit the wrong shot. He had a great ability to search for weaknesses in opponents, wear them down physically. At times, he would make it personal. Uh, he received a bit of cr- criticism early in his career and he was a bit polarising back here in Australia. But I think just over time, and quickly over time, he let his racket do the talking and people soon came to respect the way that he would fight for every single match. And if you paid 20 bucks for a ticket to come and watch a match of his, you got $25 worth every single time. And I think that's what everybody respects. You say he made it personal occasionally. Was he ever difficult to coach at all? Yeah, obviously. he For sure he was. He, he was one of the first players that gave the business to the box. And he wanted to win that badly that a lot of desperation would come out in the way he acted on the court and uh, his thoughts. And after the match, you you go and chat to him and talk to him about some of the stuff he would say. And he said, I didn't say that. (laughs) He couldn't even remember it because he was so wired up in the situation that he... All he wanted to do was find a way to win, and he would leave it all on the court. But the amazing thing about Lane is that as fired up that he got on the court, 15 minutes after finishing a match and maybe taking a devastating loss, he was over it. He'd already moved on, and he could enjoy a win, but also move on from a loss just as quick as anyone. I think the only other player that I've seen move on from a pretty tough loss as quick as him would be Roger Federer. I've heard um, a couple of people, you, you mentioned his Davis Cup achievements. I, I've been recounting the one he came back from two sets to love down to yeah. beat Federer. I've just been reminded of the one he had against Gustavo yeah, Kirk yeah. on clay. What, what, is your, what would your, be your greatest memory of what he, what he achieved? Yeah, those two Davis Cup matches, the two standout matches for him. I, I think you would say personally winning the two majors was great for him. But when you're playing for your country, especially being from Australia and having the Davis Cup tradition that we've had here with the legacy with a lot of the other great champions that we've had, for him, he mentioned it tonight, his greatest moment was getting the green and gold tracksuit number 89 because we, we number every player that gets a chance to play Davis Cup for Australia. He's number 89 in Australia. He knows his number. And those two matches against Gustavo Querton in Brazil, and he, not only did he win the singles, but he also won the doubles playing with Pat Rafter. And that match he played against Federer in the semis, I think it was 2003. Uh, two of the great matches, two of the great performances. But you could go through... 20 or 30 matches that Leighton Hewitt has played where he's come from the brink of defeat, turned it around, turned it into a spectacular win. Uh, But that's the type of player he was. It was never easy for him, but he always found a way to win. What sort of coach is he going to make? A spectacular coach. Uh, He's got patience. He's loyal. uh, He's very thoughtful. uh, He's got a great tennis brain. um, He's got some... Uh, challenges and issues with the players that he has here in Australia and it's going to test him straight away but he's got a great deal of talent at his doorstep in Kyrgios and Tomic and Kokonakis coming through Um, so he's in for an exciting time I think it's going to be a little bit of a learning period but he's kind of been doing the coaching role for the last couple of years anyway so it's always going to be a natural step for him to be the captain. Lovely to talk to you Darren thanks for your time. You too mate.
Well, Colin Fleming and I have just been sitting in the commentary box for BBC Radio 5 Live, just a few feet away from the fastest serve in the world. We actually stare right down the barrel, don't we, Colin, as it's coming towards us. And I think there were only two occasions where we had to flinch in our commentary box when the, the ball smashed into the, the glass front in front of us. And that's because Andy Murray was in front of us, able to, to repel all those serves. I mean, his reser- returning game today was out of this world. Yeah, it was uh, it was a masterclass from Andy, really, in, in dealing with with a big server, a big serve volleyer. Um, the way he's not only able to get the ball back into play, but to get it down low and make it awkward for that first volley. Um, Sam Groth took a while to get into the match. It took him a, a set and a bit before he really settled into a rhythm on his serve. But even when he did, Andy looked like he had all, all the answers pretty much, and especially on the second serve, so dominant. And it's just great to watch the the skills that he has in that area of his game. We saw, I think, four or five clear winner lobs in the first set and a half I mean it must be it must be soul destroying as a player who's got a serve volley game to be lobbed repeatedly like that absolutely yeah because as a sort of serve volley or a net rusher you want to feel like you can really close the net hard and cut down the angles and make it difficult for your opponent to pass but when he's flicking the lob you've got to be so so wary of that and it means that the, the angles then for the passes become open and, and Andy ultimately just had too many too many options, too much variety for him. He could pass him, he could hit an angle, he could hit down the line, he could lob him and, and by the end I think Sam just didn't really know what was coming next. It's going to be very interesting isn't it as we build in towards the second week of this tournament because Murray today, I, I think I described him at one point as Djokovic-like in terms of his ruthlessness out there. There was there was never a drop. He, I mean, they're, they're just announcing the players here. We're out in the player area which is the voice you can but that's that's what it was like wasn't it he he didn't have a moment of let down and how important do you think that that will be as we get into the sharp end of the tournament well it's going to be key for him um he had a slight slight blip two unforced errors i can remember which gave sam groth the break in the second set to get back into the match but um other than that, he was, he was pretty relentless, Andy Murray, and really in control of what he was doing at every every stage. And that's going to be key because when he comes up against you know, the Djokovic's, the Federer's, you can't afford to have a dip in your game. And that's what's cost Andy Murray a couple of times in the past, thinking of the final like here last year where there was nothing in it. And indeed, you might have said Andy was just getting on top in that third set, a set all, got a break up, and then... Well, Djokovic's antics maybe caused it to happen with the with this you know ankle injury or whatever was going on there. But Andy then, for whatever reason, let his mindset completely slip, had a bit of a meltdown, and, and unfortunately that cost him the match. Um, so he needs to compete every point, every game, every set um, in these matches against the top guys. So it looks like he's he's in a, a mental state where he's ready to do that. Can I ask what what it is like trying to combine fatherhood, parenthood with? A tennis career because it's something you've encountered over the last couple of years and and Andy Murray's going to come across it over the next 12 months well next couple of months what is it like what what changes um well it changes your whole sort of uh, perspective on, on on life really um you know, once she, well, when I had little Rose, my daughter, everything becomes about her, and, and, and if she's okay, then then everything else in life's okay. You know, that's that's the real, the sort of natural uh, feeling that you get. So I'm sure Andy would be no different to that. But ultimately, you've got to. Um, what well, he wants to continue his career. Um, I, I, he's in a nice position with the, the resources he's got. He'll probably be able to have Kim and the baby around quite a lot. But even then, it's quite it's quite strenuous. It's quite difficult for them to travel a lot. I've found that at times where 
mum, uh, you know, my wife, my daughter. Obviously, I'm busy during the day, so it's, it's, it's a big ask for them to travel a lot. So it makes it even more difficult to, to do the amount of travelling that we do. But it's going to be going to be a bit of a challenge for Andy, but it's something I'm sure he's, he's looking forward to. Kim will be looking forward to it, and it's a, an exciting thing in his life, no doubt. Has he been asking your advice at all? Uh, not yet, not yet. He should though, because I'm I'm pretty good at it. So no, <laughs> uh, no, no. I'm sure I'm sure he's getting lots of advice from different people. So, um, but nothing can really prepare for, prepare you for it, as you know. You know, it's sort of uh, everything goes out the window for that that first sort of month or so. So uh, it's going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing the stories of how he's coping when the baby does arrive. How's your partnership with Jonathan Ehrlich going? I mean, obviously you lost in the first round here, but he's a very experienced player. Is it a, is it a partnership you're looking to persist with? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, Jonathan and I are looking to, to team up for the foreseeable future, and it's one I'm, I'm quite optimistic about because um, we've had we've had a lot of good work on the practice court. We've got quite a good understanding of where we see ourselves playing our best tennis. You know, how we want to play, and um, I think that's key. It gives us something to work on when we're together at tournaments and when we're alone at home. And um, having that sort of impetus and momentum is great. The results went where we wanted them to be here in in January. You know, we lost first round in Doha. We had a big win in, in Sydney against the Bryans, um, a, a disappointing second round there. And then we had a, a tight match yesterday, nothing really in it. Um, unfortunately, we lost to Robin Hassan, Fernando Verdasco. Verdasco was in great form after his win against Nadal. But no, I, I feel quite optimistic and, and hopefully February can be a big month for us. We've got three or four tournaments there, so hoping to put in some, some points on the board. I was going to say, how do you make it work when you're partnering a guy who lives maybe in a different country to yourself? Because um, you, you partnered Ross Hutchins for a long time and I imagine if you're based in a similar place, you can practice all the time. If you're on the road at tournaments, that's one thing, but do you, do you stay in touch with a partner much when you're in completely different countries? Uh, you stay in touch a little bit, but obviously you're doing, doing the work yourself. Um, I think people, people would be surprised at how often doubles players train alone. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would think you need four players to, to practice doubles. Well, you do if you want to play points, but actually working on the specific skills and things that you use, it's quite often a player and a coach alone, um, as it would be with a, with a singles player. So it's uh, there's definitely things you can work on, but it's nice when you've got a bit of uh, a longer-term partnership because you know as a team the things that are going to make a difference, so you go away and work on your individual part of that. Um, so that's what I'll be doing when I, when I get home. I'm flying home tonight, so back on the court probably Sunday or Monday and then uh, start working on my game to be ready for, for challenges ahead. And in your experience, how long does it typically take or has it taken you to feel proper chemistry with a, with a new partner? Well, it's a funny thing because um, Jonathan and I played two events last year, one in St. Petersburg and one in uh, Shenzhen in China. We lost first round in St. Petersburg and then we won the whole tournament in, in Shenzhen. So from that, you would say, well, it doesn't take long at all. But it's, it's a different mentality when you commit to each other, to teaming up. Suddenly there's a little bit more, I think there's probably a little bit more pressure involved and you want to make a success of it. When it's just a one-off week, it's easy to sort of play quite relaxed and whatever happens, happens. But now it really, it means something a little bit more for us. So we need to we need to just figure that out as well but like I say the results weren't what we were hoping for this month but we did play some good stuff so optimistic about the, the months ahead Final point just looking ahead for the rest of this Australian Open what, what do you see happening do you think is anybody going to upset the apple cart and stop Djokovic and Federer reaching the semis and facing each other do you, could you see anybody derailing Andy Murray from getting that far 
Well, I mean, I would never, I would never bet against it because all three of them look in such good form. We're so used to them turning up. It's amazing how they always turn up, Grand Slam after Grand Slam, in almost tip-top condition. But everything they do is based around these tournaments, and these are the ones they want to be winning. So, you know, it's going to be tough to tough to knock Novak Djokovic off his perch. It's going to be tough to to stop sort of uh, Federer and, and Murray having a march towards playing in the later rounds. But there's guys out there capable of doing it. Vavrinka showed himself with the firepower he has. Milos Raonic looks in, in great form to me he's got a huge game Carlos Moya in his corner now so he looks like one to watch he could be very dangerous but it's going to be an exciting tournament because you've got a lot of players playing well from what I can see funny isn't it we're standing here an absolutely buzzing area we're outside uh, maybe half a dozen eight television screens with all the matches going on and this is where they book the practice courts suddenly in a week's time this place is utterly deserted aside from a couple of people isn't it yeah it becomes like a ghost town I've been you know had a couple of runs to, to the second week of of slams and I remember being in New York once and, and making it to I think it was second Wednesday or Thursday even and an amazing at the start of the tournament I mean you can't there's no space to breathe almost there's so many people around and support teams and families and friends and everything and then by the end it's just a you know a handful of, of people left and uh, that's something that these top guys are so used to and I, I can only imagine the atmosphere when you get in there for a Grand Slam singles final and you've got two gladiators if you like you're sitting either side of the, the changing room with their, their, their camps hustled, huddled over them and sort of whispers of get it into his pack kind of a bit more whatever it might be it must be an amazing atmosphere and then of course after the match the elation on one side disappointment on the other but that's uh, that's the beauty of our sport